I'm Collier Landry, subject of the investigation discovery documentary of murder in Mansfield. On New Year's Eve 1989, I awoke in the middle of the night to the sound of two loud thuds. The next morning, my mother was missing, but I knew she was no longer alive. No one believed me except one detective. And 25 days later, police found my mother's body buried beneath the basement floor of my father's new home he purchased for his mistress. I had witnessed a murder. And at the age of 12, I testified against my father at his months-long murder trial. He is still incarcerated to this day. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. And on today's Moving Past Murder, we have a very dear friend of mine who was one of the producers on my film, uh, A Murder in Mansfield. And he is currently doing a new podcast series being released on iHeartRadio starting on June 15th. It is called After the Uprising. And I am pleased to welcome to this program, Ray Novoselsky. Thanks so much, man. You're the first one I'm, I'm going to be talking with about this project. So I'm going to be like working it out with you, but there's no one I'd rather do that with than you, man. So thank you for having me on. I'm known for being the guy that works everyone through the kinks. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it must be my nature. Guys, I got to do that for you a little bit on, on uh, Murder and yes, you did. really, right? That is very true. And on that note, let's uh, let's get to it, shall we? Let's do it. So again, today's guest is Ray Novoselsky. Ray is the co-creator and co-executive producer of After the Uprising, a new podcast series in 11 parts uh, to be featured on iHeartRadio. Trailer, I just believe, dropped today. That's correct. Just today. It was like, it was madness. There was a lot of social media and there was all this stuff that we had to be on top of. And, and I'm just coming up for air. Well, I appreciate you taking the time for us. And you're going to have 11 episodes, which are going to, the first one's going to premiere on Tuesday, June 15th, which is exciting for you. Yeah, because we've been working on this for two and a half years. And a lot of these episodes have been in some form in the can since at least late last year. The big struggle was finding like a partner that would have, I guess, the guts to put them out. And we finally did with iHeart and now this. But um, yeah, this will finally... Like I'm going to be on pins and needles all summer because of the fact that it's a weekly. And yeah. so it's like that first episode, like you said, is June 15th. The last one I think isn't until August 22nd. So wow. week by week, I'm going to, I already know what happens, but I'm going to have to kind of watch the <laughs> audience, you know, follow the zigs and zags as we live them, uh, which will be very interesting, but I wish I could just have it over with be at the end of the summer already. right right yeah. i will hold on to the summer as long as i can because i enjoy <laughs> the weather but uh really fast so i i've been privileged enough to listen to the first couple of episodes which you sent me and uh it's a fascinating podcast but why don't you tell our listeners in a nutshell what it's what it's about oh actually but let's let's backtrack that how do you and i know each other is the real question right. so you were one of the producers on the murder in mansfield yeah, correct. I mean, I got to work with you and on finally telling your story that you'd always that you'd wanted to tell your, your whole life. And uh, I, do you feel that it got told how you wanted it to? I, I'm hoping. 
Yeah, I, f- I think it was amazing. <laughs> and it's and, and one of the cool things and, you know, you and I have discussed this many times, but was to be able to see the impact of the film. And that was something that I think we all really hoped would be the case is that it would have an impact. But to actually see something like that come to fruition is amazing. And hopefully you have the same thing with uh, after the uprising. Well, one of my favorite screenings of anything I've ever done was the hometown Mansfield screening with like with you and Barbara Koppel, the director, and uh, and it felt like everybody in town. They were all it was. They, all, they love you. Everybody there loves you, and they're so happy to see that you've come to a, a healthy, you know, uh, landing. I guess after all that. That was one of the you know definitely the best experiences of my life for sure, and to be able to share it with you was really quite fun. Yeah, I think we, we bonded making that because we didn't really we did we had a few phone calls before production, but sure. literally, literally met out in the field. We shot that thing in in I think eight days. Yeah, right. It was pretty much almost in the in the exact order that it transpires in the movie. So it's like, you know, as those scenes are taking place, as people are watching that movie behind the scenes, I'm like getting to know you in this kind of breakneck thing where you're having these epiphanies and. I've been calling it a self-help true crime mashup is the way I've been describing murder <laughs> in Manfield. And I think that's right. Isn't that kind of, I think uh, I agree with that. I concur. <laughs> I concur. Yeah. Yeah. Hence why we ended up with uh, moving past murder because uh, that's pretty much what you did. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That is precisely what, how it went. So anyways, here seated, we are. For everyone who, who has seen that movie, and hung on those that like 15 minute final scene between you and your father. I'm I'm right outside the door with the headset on, listening to every moment, fully invested, like like the audience members are by that point in the movie, and just was like, how is this go- going to end? And is he? I was I so wanted to see you get what you wanted out of that meeting, right? Yeah. So it just had all this drama to it because y- you weren't totally in control of that how that turned out right no but you know as as i did for my ted talk you know which is you know the title was what if the answer you seek is not the answer you need i went as far as to go to the extreme to make a murder in mansfield with somebody like barbara koppel who's won two academy awards for documentaries to try to get that answer that i thought that i needed to give me the closure if you will and that's not what i ended up getting but that was sort of the beautiful the beautiful outcome of everything you know the true beauty of of this mystery of life right is that we go in anticipating some sort of outcome that we build up in our mind is exactly what we want exactly what we're going to get and not that i wasn't moving past in my own life i had already had a career here in los angeles and hollywood and but this was a major roadblock in my life and i thought okay if i could do this this would get me some the additional closure that I've always sought. And I didn't get that traditional closure that I think most people were mm. expecting, like yourself, like, oh, is he going to tell the truth finally? Is he going right. to? And, and we see that he's just completely, you know, spoiler alert, guys, but we can see that he's, you know, completely incapable of that. And uh, it's interesting. It was a fascinating process. And I remember after that meeting with my father, obviously the Ohio Department of Corrections, they removed me from their Christmas card list after we <laughs> shot, after we shot that, but you went, so poor Ray, um, he, 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 uh, he was kind of the guy, he was kind of the fall guy sometimes in the film where we just, we kind of, 
Ray, you just kind of yeah, talk to Ray. Talk, you got a problem, you talk to Ray. So <laughs> the woman who was the head of the Department yeah. of Corrections that was livid to say the least, she pulls Ray into a concrete room with uh you know, with we could see the glass, but it was a concrete room in a prison, which is pretty soundproof. And we can hear her screaming at the top of her lungs yeah. at Boar Ray. This, this is not what we talked about. We practice for, you know, these types of things for months and, you know, and all this stuff and basically get out because we had scheduled we were going to then get like footage of your father, like back in his cell and kind of life in the prison stuff. And that was just out. It was just go. But you remember what I told you guys, I said, this is how it's going to have to go. I'm going to drop you. We're going to get up at 5. AM or get there at 5. AM. I'm going to drop you guys off and go fuck off to a Starbucks. Or I think I ended up in like a Panera for like eight hours and wait until our other producer, David Cassidy texted me and said, come back to the prison because I said, I don't know what's going to go on in that room. My father is definitely, you know, because one of the things a lot of people don't know, and, and, you know, you and I discussed many times as Barbara and John and everybody involved is my father sincerely felt that I was making a film about him to help him get out of prison. Yeah. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, my father is a, you know, textbook sociopath and therefore narcissist. So, um, it was really interesting uh, how it all played out. But that was the thing I said, let's get our guys get everything. Because Barbara was like, oh, you'll go in, you'll talk to her, and then we'll get our day life stuff. And I said, no, you guys got to get everything beforehand, which you were able to get the interview with him and, and things of that nature. And then me right. coming into the prison. That, that was wise doing that interview. I think so. I, I think it was because yeah. all hell broke loose and it all landed right on the lap of poor Ray Novoselsky. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that the head of the prison was mad about? Well, oh. there were like a very liberal prison, right? So, I, or a very progressive. Progressive, so, for sure. Progressive that's... prison, that's the term, yeah. And I guess what they do is if they know that there's going to be, you know, like a, a, a victim, victimizer confrontation, they allow these things, but they'll spend months in advance making sure the mental health of their you know, inmate is not gonna be affected by that. So they felt there was a switcheroo here, which I said to her, I said, look, we have no idea what's gonna happen. Had the guy simply like told the truth to his son, this would have been a very different meeting. But Precisely. <laughs> we were denied access to the prison. And I had to remember, I had to go back to Ohio for almost three weeks and sort of back channel through the former warden, talk to her who introduced me to this person through the governor's office who ended up getting me back in front of these people, this woman that was screaming at you. And, (laughs) you know, I did this pitch meeting. It was the best pitch meeting I've ever done in my life. And I I basically pled my case and said, look, we just want to make a film. And I and I sold them on the fact that it was going to be this big come to Jesus moment. And they were excited about that because, okay, I confront my father. He admits, and it's, oh, this big come to Jesus moment, which they love. The thing that I didn't tell them is, is that I truly know that my father's a sociopath mm-hmm. and it's not going to go that way, you know, because this is called a, you know, restorative justice is, is the term uh, okay. where the victim confronts, as you say, the victimizer or the perpetrator and tells them how they feel. And I was just discussing this with a friend of mine, Alexis Linkletter, who does a show called Unraveled on uh, Discovery Plus. And, and, you know, she had just watched the documentary recently. And she goes, yeah, I noticed that once you start reading that letter, like everything changes. I was like, yeah, because 
once I say to my father, ever since you murdered my mother, which was actually the first time I had ever said that to him and confronted him. And it's like all the air gets sucked out of the room and it goes into this whole other thing where I read that letter that he sent back to me when I was a kid, when I asked him to to be honest with me about why he murdered my mother. And does he understand the impact of his crime on our family, on the community? And he just wrote refuse and sent it back to me. And we used that as a letter. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know if you remember, but I hadn't even read that letter since I was a kid. And I gave that letter to John and John Morrissey, who we're going to interview on this program eventually, and mm-hmm. Barbara as well. And I gave it to John and Barbara Koppel. And I said, why don't you guys read this? And you tell me what you think. And it was like a game time decision. Do I read this letter and really confront my father or do I um, or, or do I kind of softball this and we make something happy and they go no you just go for it <laughs> yeah. and that's what we did and well, you, I, I actually I had kind of the job internally of going through all the letters that you'd saved that you handed yeah. over to us and um, fascinating I mean I you know I I'm, honestly to be honest yeah I had thought about writing like an in-depth kind of profile magazine piece up specifically about that I mean would have gotten your permission but I thought that would have been great to come out and be timed with the film because just the idea of this, what was it 20, 30 year correspondence that had happened from the time he'd gone in until your current age and getting to see the weird mind games and the ups and downs as you aged and grew up and left and all that is, it was anyway, crazy. It's fascinating. Crazy and that's one of the yeah. things that we do on this program is we do read my father's letters to me because mm-hmm. I have like 500 of them, as you know. Right. Which let me take you to task right now. We were reading one and they were oh, no. all, they were in different envelopes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. I finally got caught. What is this? Five years later, I'm getting called out. Barbara's going to listen to this. She's going to go, oh, can't trust him with letters anymore. It was so, it was so, no, it was just funny because I was reading it and I was like, oh, and it, you know, like, come on. There was so, there's so much material there, but it's interesting you say that because there's, there is that 30 year period of correspondence. I think that, you know, we, you normally are not privy to as, uh, you know, as an outsider. And I want to eventually, one of the goals is to put it into a book and have different psychologists and criminologists and people like that really uh, analyze this Mm -hmm. and go, okay, this is classic text, as you say, textbook manipulation. This is gaslighting. This Mm -hmm. is, uh, this is projection because there's a, there's a lot of it. And he writes in different handwritings, as you know, and then Mm -hmm. types and then writes things. And it's, it's a very fascinating look inside the mind of somebody like my father. Yeah. Uh, And, and the insults too. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah just weird, weird things to say to a to a child but anyway. a child who yeah a child whose mother you murdered yeah exactly but you know that scene i'm trying to think of another scene in a documentary that runs like 15 minutes long and just stays on the scene and sustains it because i really can't no i'm kind of a doc connoisseur i can't think of anything and um and that was i mean yeah it was just like there'd been so much I felt we felt the audience was so invested by that point in time that it could sustain just you and your father sitting in a room having a conversation for 15 minutes. You know, the TV hour is like 44 minutes. So you come back from the last commercial break and that's it's all one scene, basically. And the fact that nobody ever complained about it, like we never, you know, there's never a review that was like, well, that was really long. They probably could have cut that down. It was never like that, you know. So anyway, if you hadn't brought 
by the way, it's like documentary, it's not reality TV. So we always say, we just want to roll with whatever happens. But the God's honest truth is you're always hoping something interesting, dramatic, you know, something will happen that's of interest, that's of poetic, that's beautiful. And, you know, if you hadn't come in determined to do what you did and stuck to it and had the guts to, to you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who would have come in with the intention, but then kind of just folded, you know, and you stuck with it and you went for it. And that's why this, the thing worked, you know, that's why the whole film worked. So, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the, the really cool things I always say is that the, the film, you know, it's like when we were at Dave Messmore's house and Barbara says to me, I, I, you know, I said, Hey, I said, what are you guys going to go do right now? And she's like, well, we're going to go down to the police station and look at the case file. Do you want to come? And Dave Messmore and Sue Messmore are like, absolutely not. Absolutely not, Collier. You don't want to see this. And I said, well, you know, I said, here's the thing. I said, this is what we're doing here. This is about being vulnerable. This is about sharing with the audience that you can overcome these things. And we need to, this is it, warts and all, man. This is what we're doing here. And I felt that even as horrific as seeing those pictures of my mother's body was for me, it's not like I didn't imagine those in my head. It just mm. put a, you know, a, a sort of stamp on it that, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not imagining this. This is sort of what I think it looked like, right? And it's hard to explain because a lot of people think I wouldn't want to see that. And trust me, you don't. But at the same time, it does put a finality to it in your mind where, okay, this is it, you know? And then that gave me the additional ammunition when I talked to my father, when he was saying, oh, it's an accident, it's this, I didn't suffocate her. Well then, according to the mm. police report, this, and this is what I read. And then, you know, one of the revelations for me was, you know, that the back of her skull was, you know, cracked and smashed in. And, and like, it was hit with like a, you know, you know, they wrote on BFT, blunt force trauma, right? And I had no idea. And then listening to my father try to justify that in the film was really, yeah, that was something that was very shocking to me to listen to him just sort of hypothesize on this. Yeah. It's, well, yeah. So not to be macabre, but so you, ha you have no regrets. Like there's, you know, certain images that you wish, you know, that like they don't, come back and haunt you at weird times or I don't know, you know, well, just... I mean, they, they definitely do. And I mean, just to be really blunt about it, I went to see a friend in the hospital two days ago who is on life support and they're going to most likely take him off of that because he's gone and sort of had that look at it. And it reminded me of those photos of my mother. Yeah. Uh, and I was, it, it was a chilling moment. It was something that was a little heavy for me at that moment because it brought it back in my head. And I, I was like, Oh, you know, but um, no, I don't regret any of it. I, yeah. I really don't. I mean, do I want to keep doing it again? No, but I mean, I, I had already sort of thought what I thought. Yeah. So it just kind of put a finality on it, like I said. So that was. I had a yeah. similar experience on this new podcast where about, and it didn't make it into the podcast itself, but we were in a hotel room with the mother who'd lost her son. And she found out that we had uh, acquired the, the morgue photos um, and she insisted on seeing them. And uh, my, my podcasting partner, longtime friend, journalism partner, John Duffy, um, I mean, he was in this really awkward spot because he would show her one at a time and he would keep going like, I don't want to keep doing this. We don't have to do this. Maybe we shouldn't do this. And she'd say, no, 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 show me the next one. But she would 
she was breaking down in a significant way and he's just sure. sort of forced to keep putting it you know her through this pain photo by photo anyway um i'm hoping to move past true crime um i was telling you about that because just for my were. own mental health maybe i'm not tough enough to to deal with it multiple times you know um anyway it takes a special breed i suppose for me yeah it's just been my life yeah and I, I I was talking to again my friend the other night, and I you know, uh, it's different for me because there's like these true crime fans and people that are really into it. And there's like the amateur sleuth aspect, and, and mm-hmm. it, I you know I'm I'm gonna do another TED talk soon, and, w- and what I'm basically writing it on is America's obsession with true crime, mm-hmm. because I you know, I, I, look I was on a dating website and and I met a girl and she's like, oh I, I met this guy. He did a murder in Mansfield. They go, oh my God, you're he's a he's a true crime celebrity. He's like number five on the true crime celebrity list. And I'm like, true crime celebrity? Okay, the easy. Uh, but so there's true crime groupies. There's true crime. There apparently there are true crime groupies that I've discovered, and it's interesting. So the reason why I'm saying this is I, as somebody who had to live through this, I didn't make that choice to actively become involved in this. Right? It's not like yeah. oh, oh, I'm so obsessed with true crime. But yeah. there are so many people that are, and it's, uh, I, I find it, I find the obsession with that and the macabre aspect of it, or the amateur sleuth aspect, all the aspects of it, really the facets of it, I should say, are fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And some of the questions I get from people can range anywhere from like, how did you know your father killed your mother? How did you know this? Or to like just kind of admiration of of my courage oh and then it ranges from like you know their reaction to such a beautiful soul being lost in my mother right uh from the physical plane at least yeah and then we you know then to like what's it like to stare the devil in the face you know with your father and confronting him and not only doing that as a child in the witness stand but then also doing it as an adult putting his feet to the fire well you know our pitch when we were taking this project around was that it was black lives matter meets true crime which we felt had never really crossed over before which is weird because if you think about it almost every black lives matter case is about is about a young black man or a young black woman who was shot and and there's a mystery around that like you know was it justified how did it go down you know did, did they pull did they have a gun did they do this or that or was it just that so really they're all true crime but where i'm going with this is you know of course you, you lay you look at demographics that you're trying to reach on a given project and so sure. if we're trying to take true crime and we're trying to match it with black lives matter we're looking at two different demos and as we analyze them true crime has really been dominated by um i think it's something like you know 24 to 55 year old white women and so a lot of the crimes that get covered in true crime tend to be white crimes and there's this debate that's starting to happen now it's a very niche debate about how essentially it makes it it starts to define in people's minds what are crimes versus what are these other things and the things that happen to black people are not crimes they're like these other things you see what i'm saying and so anyway i think we have an interesting opportunity with this podcast to redirect that and that we'd spend 11 episodes exploring the central mystery around something the police knee jerk decided was suicide seemingly and we give it the investigation they never did 
Sure. Yeah. Well, on that note, so <laughs> after the uprising is the podcast. It is on iHeartRadio beginning on June 15th. So Ray, why don't you give us the premise on how you kind of stepped into this? What was fascinating to you? Because this covers specifically, I know we've discussed, you know, we've touched upon Black Lives Matter and, and the black crime and things of that nature, but mm what this centers around the Ferguson yeah. situation, which I believe was ignited throughout the country because of the death of Michael Brown. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Did she say what was wrong at all? Uh, she just kept saying my baby. I can't get her to talk to me. Yeah, can you tell me what's going on? You may remember seeing something about the death of Donye Jones on your social media feed around the end of 2018. Well, a Ferguson, Missouri activist found her son hanging from a tree, and police are ruling it a suicide, but the mother believes it was a lynching. Now she is calling for an investigation after she says police failed to do their job. He was not suicidal. I'm Ray Novoselsky. Starting only six weeks after Donye was found hanged by a bedsheet, my colleague John Duffy and I spent two and a half years working with Donye's mother, Melissa, with many members of his family, his friends, and even members of the Ferguson activist community to follow the trail and find out what exactly happened to him. Kanye wasn't that type of person. I didn't expect to never see him again. And he had a very bright energy. The whole situation is a bunch of I don't know. Finding him in the backyard hung up, I will say, tying yourself up with a sheet and a chair, that's, that's stuff people do in jail, bro, when they when they know they about to face life. You know what I'm saying? Kanye was my ex-boyfriend. No one got his phone open. No one has gotten his phone open yet. Oh my God. Not only did we find apparent holes in the investigation into Donye's death, but also it appears to be racism in local law enforcement. I do remember the lead detective in the case. And I remember him because he had the black eye. He was laughing. What would we need to do to work on doing an interview with Officer Anderer? As a reasonable person, would you think that Officer Anderer would be interested in this? After everything we've seen, it looks as though the possibility that Donye was murdered was never taken seriously by St. Louis County officials. She said, we're going to destroy the sheets. And I said, why are you going to destroy the sheets? That's part of the evidence. We're going to have a private investigation. The bed sheet that was used was, was sent down to our lab and they did DNA on it. I take no secondary DNA at all on the There is another one. It's a minor component. When we have suicides, there is a certain amount of investigation, but it is not much more than this. From Double Asterisk, Now This, and iHeartRadio comes an unforgettable new investigative podcast series, After the Uprising. Listen to the first episode on June 15th, and new episodes weekly after that. Subscribe today on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. See, everybody else wants to make it seem like it's one thing. My main thing is who the hell killed my son? I don't care if it was the police. I don't care if it was President Obama. I don't care. I need to find out who killed my son. You know, one of the things you said, Ray, about the fact that there hasn't been a lot of focus on um, true crime when it comes to the black population. Right. Um, I've noticed, um, and I, I really think with some of the podcasts, I think they're touching on it more. I know Morbid and um, Crime Junkie 
they're really trying to make a point to be more inclusive with um, the black population, with LGBTQIA+, um, um, mm. with those um, communities as well, to point out that, you know, this was crime against these groups and that they do need to be valued and they do need to be paid attention to and you know there i think they're actually and i know especially crime junkie because ashley really seems to try to put pressure on police when it comes to these unsolved crimes um as well like she really gets kind of down in the dirt so to speak um and really seems to be an advocate uh for people and i love that about them and the fact that they are making a difference and they are trying to you know shine a light on it as well so yeah. you know it's great that you know you're doing it in such a big way because it's you know the focus and i think there should be more of that because as everybody starts to be more inclusive and there are podcasts like yours that really focus on um this under um represented part of our you know our population and that are dealing with the same things that everybody else is they're just you know just now really being focused on um you know i think crime crime occurs to to like you know everybody two black communities and black communities are just as concerned about crime as white communities exactly absolutely but are are they getting served in the same way by the police one thing i think that our show I didn't I, I didn't intend to focus on this when we went in, but a th- major theme that emerges is this idea that and I, look, I, I acknowledge up front that Black Lives Matter is, is, a, is a controversial thing in a country that's deeply divided. Um, but the premise of Black Lives Matter is largely around the idea that there there's systemic racism within police forces and it causes um, young black men and young black women to, to get shot when they should. I mean, that's right. That's right. put in a really straightforward way. Now, what we're saying, though, is, well, if that systemic racism is causing violence against Black people in those communities, does it not also make sense that it, that it probably is resulting in the crimes against Black people not being taken as seriously, not being investigated? I mean, if the systemic racism is going to potentially result in knee-jerk violence against them, then, which is very extreme, then you would think it would not be that controversial that the same systemic racism would result in them being underserved by these police in those communities you know well if i can this is this is a whole different conversation but i I, (laughs) but now we've now we've opened up the can of worms (laughs) i think that the really the big issue with all of that is that we as americans continually and i think that many leaders in the black community have said the exact same thing is we tend to tiptoe around the uh, around the discussion of black on black violence as well Mm -hmm. and i think that until those discussions really happen you know black on black crime what's happening in cities like chicago what where our obsession is with firearms such as a you know a semi-automatic rifle versus handguns in an urban inner city environment which are mm-hmm. lethal on a mm-hmm. weekend basis you see the murder numbers come out of chicago and things yeah. like, of that nature that you know I, and, and to your point with black lives matter and in your podcast in the first episode there's a gentleman i, I think his last name is seals mm-hmm. yeah darren seals right darren yeah. seals says you know we don't care about 
the Black Lives Matter movement. We don't care about any of these politics. He's talking about Trump. He's talking about Hillary. He loathes them both. He, right. he, he, he puts everybody in that same basket and says, these are all opportunists is kind of what he's saying yeah. in a nutshell. These are opportunists that are that are trying to move uh, uh, uh set agendas based upon our grassroots movement to improve police rela- relationships with the black communities, essentially. Mm-hmm. And these knee jerk reactions, like you say. And I think that those, that's my distaste for some of these organizations or these politicians that get up and grandstand mm-hmm. and pontificate to the public of this is this, this and the woke sort of culture, if you will, uh, because those people I feel like, okay, it's a money show. It's a thing. And it's like the organic, the fundamental root of why these things even came to the forefront of our national discussion. We have sort of almost abandoned yeah. a lot of ways. And that's where it needs to be that grassroots, you know, take action in your community because this whole, you know, there was a, an article recently in the LA times talking about how crime and, or in typically black neighborhoods of Los Angeles, like Compton, Linwood, those areas, the crime is up. Well, okay, what have we done in the last 12 months? We have gone on this whole tirade of, you know, uh, you know, F the police and, and let's downsize the police, let's defund the police. And so the retaliatory sort of the constant, the, the, the ancillary consequence of that is, okay, now we've tightened down on police officers. So they can't, the ones that are actually trying to do their jobs, and keep communities safer are 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 not able to do the jobs and who is really affected is it the rich white people in beverly hills or rich people it's really rich people this is i i look at this as yes there is a racial component which is very significant in all these things but i think a lot of it boils down to a class system in this country yep. of the haves versus the have-nots now most of the have-nots happen to be people of color obviously and that needs, that's something that needs to change, right? But it's not like the policing. I live in Santa Monica, right? You, you call the police. You call the police here. They're here in two minutes, you know? Uh, and it's a privately funded police department, just like with West Hollywood. They have the sheriff's department, right? Because it's a municipality. So, but these other communities that Los Angeles Police Department itself serves, uh, they, I feel like the, the, the communities, like unlike Beverly Hills or Bel Air, Linwood, Compton are not being served in the way that they should be. Because really, when you pull away budgets from police departments uh, in a major city like ours, right, like Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you are you're doing disservice to communities of color. In my opinion, I think that's reflective on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, at the, on the same at the same time, I remember watching the riots in Ferguson, going what the fuck when they have these military like essentially tanks or armored vehicles driving down the street in Ferguson to try to push rioters aside but you know Mayberry has a tank like every little town every suburb got a freaking tank you have you have and and this is all and and to your point when we were discussing 9-11 and activism behind that that this is the this is the blood cost or this yeah. is the ramification of fighting these wars that we have gotten ourselves into. 
oh, we have all this military equipment, which we need to get rid of because now yeah. we're toning down fighting in Afghanistan, right? We're winding down doing this. Oh, let's just sell it to police departments. So instead of, you know, obviously the Los Angeles police department needs a SWAT team with SWAT gear and semi-automatic and automatic rep, whatever this tactical gear is and all this stuff, because we are a major metropolitan area. Not Bayberry, population 3,000. Yeah. Why, why do they have officers in riot gear going out, and, you know, in full-on tactical armor? So it's because it's been sold by these massive corporations like Halliburton or McDonnell Douglas or whatever. Not saying that it's McDonnell yeah. Douglas per se, but these, they've got to get rid of it. And it's our government. Oh, let's just sell it to these communities because they can benefit from this. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I think that's where the defund the police thing gets sort of wacky as people are like, oh, let's defund the police and not have as much money. No, but I think any reasonable person goes, they don't need a tank. They don't, they don't need a fucking tank. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and they're not yeah. going to deal with a terrorist situation in, you know, Arkadelphia, Arkansas, or, you know. <laughs> well, Darren, Darren Steele's, you're, you know, yeah, he was, he was complaining about Black Lives Matter as a movement. And a number of the Ferguson protesters have sort of done that in different ways to us. And I, I found that unexpected at first, but what sure. it sort of makes sense. You got to remember the chronology here before there, there was like a national Black Lives Matter movement. There'd been some tweets about it, especially around Trayvon Martin in 2013, but it wasn't, it hadn't really solidified into anything. What's what was the movement was started by people in Ferguson who were upset about Mike Brown Jr. not only being shot for what they felt was no reason, but then his body just being left in the sun in August as crowds sat around on that street and watched him for three, I think it was three, four hours. And just the disrespect, the kind of thing you would never see with people who looked a little different in a different kind of neighborhood. And it was just such a middle finger to them that it set them off. That was it. And they, sure. and, 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 and so it was their community looking for reform of the police. They were sick of seeing this shit happen their entire lives in their community. And they didn't yeah. necessarily think this extended to everywhere and wanted to see. So when it became a movement, you know, um, and I, I don't mean to, I think it's done a lot of good. I, I personally support it, but uh, but when it became a broader national movement where it's this place and that place and whatever, everyone kind of forgot about Ferguson and the people who put their asses on the line in their own communities, yeah. the, the spotlight moved away from them. So that became the central question for us is like, what happens when you challenge the police in your own community in such a confrontational way and then the national spotlight leaves? What What's the payback? What's the aftermath? And What's the aftermath? Exactly. Yes, sir. Um, and that's why we called it after the uprising. After the uprising. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So um, why don't you take us through a little bit about, you know, that we we thoroughly diverted off the right. road of our uh, course of our current <laughs> conversation, but but which I think was important, uh, <laughs> but and good points were raised. But I feel like uh, why, why don't you take us, mm. you know, obviously we all knew that this horrible thing happened. And we saw the riots and, and you know, when, when I, we were screening murder in Mansfield, uh, over in Amsterdam, I met, uh, the gentleman who directed, I can't remember his name, but he directed whose streets, which mm -hmm. is obviously a fantastic film. And he, you know, he was raised there and he, he, his idea, his activism was, I'm going to make a film and show this. And it's, it became a huge hit. And one of the, one know, of the shooters on that Bradley Rayford is one of our consulting producers, but, oh, okay, great. There's, yeah. there you go. But uh, uh, Damon Damon Davis was the director. Yeah, that was Damon. Yeah, so yeah. I, I got to meet him in Amsterdam. And he was a super cool guy and just was really passionate about what he was doing. And mm. 
And that's one of the wonderful things when you make a documentary, you get to meet all these really super cool people that are like-minded. But uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so so taking it back, you know, you you hear about this and you're like, okay, let's let's do something now. I'm new to the medium of podcasting, as are you. Mm-hmm. Why a podcast? Why now? What was you know? You said two and a half years in the making. Tell tell us a little bit about this. Well, my God, Collier, I, I, I'm sick of the amount of money it takes to make a documentary, <laughs> right? I, I am, I am, and like you, you know, that we, you, you develop a good mind for nonfiction storytelling. You can see a story, and then and it start, and you know that the story's unfolding while you're going and trying to raise the money to pay like a team of people to make the damn thing. And we thought, let's try podcast this time. Cause this story is happening right now. We got in touch with Melissa six months or six weeks after her son had been, been found um, either having committed suicide or been lynched or, you know, a non-racial murder. We get into it over the course of the series, uh, but it had been, been found uh, having died mysteriously found hanging from a tree uh, in his mother's backyard. And so, you know, we, we knew that this was going to move quickly. There were going to be a lot of twists and turns right off the bat. And we didn't want to have to like, hold on, can we get a camera? Out no, no, don't, don't hold that press conference until we get our, our DP Gary yeah, out. Exactly. There, you know? yeah, precisely. So, you know, yeah, you completely know what I'm talking about yeah. here. And, um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, we thought, let's try this. And it was nice. It's a nice change of pace to be able to do. And it, what we did is essentially an audio documentary. Yeah. Um, seven and a half hours of content is what the 11 episodes end up being. And, uh, and yeah, we were able to be more mobile and, and we were able to just call people up and have conversations and you feel like you're sitting in the room with them. you you know, you sort of imagine what you can't see. Um, anyway, I've, I've kind of fallen in love with the, with the genre a little bit. So I'm hoping we get a season two and, you know, I can keep playing with this space a little bit. Not that I've given up on visual documentary, but 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 in podcasting is fascinating. I I I'm 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 so happy that I decided to do this. And you know, Brenda was the one who who oh, kicked yeah. me in the kicked me in the ass to get this <laughs> rolling. And I'm like, it's great. And, you know, she's like, you got to do a podcast. And I'm like, well, I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. She's like, why don't you just you know, why don't you just put your mouth through money where your mouth is? And that's all you got to say to me. You got to challenge me. Like, okay, well then screw it. Then we're, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you put my feet to the fire. That's the last thing you're gonna do. But right. uh <laughs> but you know, she called me to task, which was amazing. Uh, but you know, when I listened to the episode, the, the first couple episodes, but in the first episode, it was right after uh, Darren Seals, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, and I, you know, I touched upon this in a briefly in a phone call with you, but I you know, say, hey, you know, we said, let's talk about it when we're on your podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is this this young gentleman who, took his own life was murdered whatever this is and how it plays out in your podcast is for everyone to see mm. but you know he was i believe he started a real estate business he was getting his real estate license or something like that he was right I, I noted as a guy with some great spirits very jovial you know great you know family and despite all these things going on in his community he was very focused on getting out of that community helping his family you know achieving a level of financial success and in financial independence Right. Which was super cool. Um, but there was this, there were a lot of things that were at play surrounding his death. And I thought, you know, initially you want to go, okay, well, this sounds like a police cover up. But then as I told you, as I started thinking about it more and then we were discussing 
you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and how people's agendas get in the way of their good judgment, let's just say, that it felt to me like there was more at play. It felt to me like that the the situation surrounding his death with the phone and messages and, and, and things that were felt like they were manipulated felt a little too um, a little too excessive for just standard police interference mm-hmm. um, yeah you talk about that a little bit because I thought that was the first thing that stuck out of my head I was like bing 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 this doesn't sound this something sounds fishy here it's weird because as we as we've gone into this we tried to keep an open it wasn't that we tried to prove he was murdered we just tried what we said was nobody gave melissa the benefit of the doubt she was sure, shouting 100%. from the rooftops you know and, and her and really Danya's entire family sister brother stepfather uncle all in lockstep saying like we saw no sign of depression no sign of suicidal tendencies it was like he was fine one day and the next morning you know he's hanging from a tree now so really really yeah. fast i'm sorry we just want to say this young man's name. Uh, what, what is his name? Just so our viewers are aware. Sure. D- Donye Jones. Donye um, Jones and his mother. D- Donye Dion Jones. And his mother is Melissa McKinney's. And his mother happened to be one of those, what they call frontline Ferguson protesters, who I would argue is, you know, uh, is going to be recognized by history as one of the people who launched Black Lives Matter into, into the national spotlight and, and to become a movement. She and her friends in Lost Voices, that was the name of their group, camped out, you know, in, the, in those early weeks when, when the Mike Brown thing could have turned into just become like a few angry days and then everyone goes back home. They camped out and they kept the marches going until it really picked up this momentum. Um, so the point, and then, and then in 2017, she was one of the lead organizers of, of uh, there was an officer named Jason Stockley who got, a, you know, uh, it was a very similar situation and they were hoping this time he would be indicted uh, uh, for the young man that he had shot. And, uh, and so she led those protests and, and they changed their tactics. So this is the year before she finds her son dead and their tactic, they're realizing if we're going to get their attention, we need to, we, we need to hit them where it hurts the pocketbook. And they cost tens of millions of dollars uh, to the city through, you know, uh, by, by targeting uh, in the way that they, where that they place their, um, their protests and th- things with, with an intention towards that. So like, pay attention to us. And, and I want to be really clear here, yeah. you know, because there are a lot of people there, a lot of these types of movements have been called under a lot of scrutiny because people want to label these people as, oh, they're looters. They just want to commit crime. They want to do this, the, these types of acts. Whereas, yes, of course, there are bad eggs in every basket, right? But these people, what they're doing with their grassroots activism, when you say costing people money or costing the city money, they're just strategically placing themselves at moments. Yes. And they are, and they are exercising. I want to be really clear because a lot of people don't seem to understand this. They are exercising their First Amendment right That's to right. assemble, to protest, and to stand up what they believe in. You know, they are not causing, they are not doing anything that is against the law. They are only exercising the freedoms right. that everyone as a citizen of this nation are guaranteed by our Bill of Rights. And that, and that's a wonderful and beautiful thing that is uniquely American. And yep. so they're being very courageous in that. 
uh, which is very cool. But but when you're right, and so therefore they're they're learning lessons as they go, right? So it starts yeah. in 2014. They don't quite get what they're looking for, so they change their tactics a little. They keep adjusting their tactics, like you would in, in any enterprise, right? You're trying to get closer to your goal. Let me try this now. And she was more successful with the Jason Stockley protests. When you're successful at pushing reform against against police who maybe don't want to be reformed you make enemies and so that's that's the premise is she she felt for about the year before Donye was found that she was seeing weird cars outside her house surveilling she was getting threatening messages you know uh hey we saw you at the rally you're not hard to get to yeah. i mean that's a weird thing when you realize that somebody not only saw you at the rally but knows your number you know and uh she would come home to find her, her lights turned off like, like literally the power off in her house. She documented that, you know, like on, on Facebook one time, just walking through. And, and just these things that like, hey, maybe I'm just paranoid. It's hard to know, but it feels like I'm not paranoid. You know, it's a lot of that. And then one day, her son, who she didn't think was depressed, didn't think was suicidal. You know, she steps out in the backyard and finds him hanging by a bed sheet. His pants were rolled down around his ankles which is a kind of a, a classic hallmark of, of, uh, of lynchings. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and what was used was a bed sheet, which the entire family swears was not any color of bed sheet that, that they owned. Also, they had rope and they had other items that would have been easier to use. The knot in the sheet was kind of a figure eight knot. It looked like a military, they called it a Navy knot. Danya had no background with such knots, so it would have been a really odd way to choose. Just the whole thing was an odd way to choose to go, you know, which is what Tef Poe tells us, uh, like an activist who also helped start the Black Lives Matter movement out of Ferguson and who's kind of a prominent rapper um, and, and a Harvard fellow. And he's just like an amazing dude. But, you know, he's Melissa's cousin. What did he say to us? He said he didn't really buy the whole idea. There's this conspiracy theory out there that there have been multiple deaths of the original Ferguson activists and that they think that there's like white supremacists or police or who knows targeting these people. We go into that a little bit and most of them don't really add up to much in our opinions. A couple might. And one of them though, Danye does seem to, but Tef told us, you know, I don't really buy the rest of them, but he's like, I got to admit for like a, a, a young man, 24 who had his life ahead of him who seemed fine to kill himself in a way that you do in prison when you know you're facing life, you know, is like, it's just odd. It's just an odd way to commit suicide, but things happen, you know? So we went in search of, was there more to this or not? You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, it is a very, uh, a very deep story. I mean, you said seven and a half hours, mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of time to really unfold a narrative. Um, people only got to take it one episode at a time if you're not hooked on that on that next one by the time you get to that you know the end of that next episode go find something else to do with yourself but i, I i'm betting that if people start down this road they'll get to the end of that episode and they're going to be hungry for that that next week's episode because I, I, there were a lot of things that shocked us and i like to think i'm pretty shock proof <laughs> well i would agree with that statement i would uh, not not the shock proof i think you're shock proof too but i I'm think that shock proof when i uh <laughs> When I listened, I was definitely gripped, and, and it's it's a very, it's so well done too. It's it's very Thank much you. in the vein of, 
you know, oh, you're welcome. It's very much in the vein of, you know, this American life uh, style of, of podcast, very well put together, very beautiful music, the mm -hmm. way the narrative flows, the interviews. I mean, it's just, you know, there's podcasts like me, mine or ours, Moving Past Murder, which is just, you know, we're flying by the seat of our pants. and like, hey, let's talk about this. And blah, blah. and then there's ones that I get, I'm like, wow, this is what you could do when you have time and you really tell the narrative and it's gripping and, oh, I love it. And well, I think I, I joked with you, too, because they I mean, the same an hour gets the same uh, ad dollars. So it's really dumb to spend two and a half years producing 11 episodes when you could spend 11 days producing 11 episodes and get those same ad dollars. So. But it's anyway. a very rich story <laughs> that you're telling. It's very yeah. it's it's very gripping. And, and the, yeah. the production value is just is outstanding. And thank uh, you, man. I really appreciate that. We put I'm a, glad a lot I'm of love into telling it. it. I'm really glad you're telling it. Listening to what I've I've heard so far, um, my heart goes out to Melissa, and I'm right there with her. I I believe what she's saying, and and um, especially the part about he was bugging her to like wash some particular clothes that he wanted to have, and all of that. You know, I have a son, you know, close to his age, and that just sounds very similar and not someone who is contemplating suicide at all. Um, just from a mom standpoint. So it's yeah. such a difficult thing too. I don't want to claim we've gotten to be a bit more experts on suicide and we did, we have talked with experts and what they will tell you of course, is that people aren't always making the kind of decisions you would expect. So it's like you, you know, you look at these things and you go, well, this doesn't add up. I didn't see this coming. This doesn't make sense. But sometimes it is like that. So we had to respect the possibility. What we felt, though, were that people were being overly dismissive or condescending to this. Um, you know, an episode at the end of episode two, we talked with a guy named Jamie Dennis, who's uh, who's Melissa's cousin-in-law. And he describes her in the heyday of her activism, calling her this like, what, what did he call her like a powerful lioness and, and she is you watch the footage and she's just so strong and charismatic and and this is not a person who you know everyone just sort of believed once she lost her son oh she can't get over it she can't accept it and i just find that hard to i find that very condescending yeah. you know listen to what this woman is saying and listen to what her whole family is saying and that was something we noticed the police just simply did not do they didn't seem to have the capacity to to like hear her and think maybe we should look into this what if there's a killer on the loose like right. you know but here's <laughs> but here's but here's to your point yeah and this is where i really you know this is one of the things that i think look um that that needs to be people's attention but let's just take let's just go back to my case with my mother right it was being treated as a missing persons case and it was basically, okay, a doctor's wife goes missing, they get into a fight, and that's how they're treating it. And it wasn't until Dave Messmore actually listened, saw the the missing persons report across his desk, and then said, Oh, let me go, you know, it's New Year's, I don't have a lot going on. Let me go, there's something there's something wrong here. I wanna go I wanna go kind of sniff this out and then speaks to me and I have the you know, the the chutzpah or whatever, guts courage, whatever you want to call it, to say to him, look, my mother is dead and I know this and this is why. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're often 
these types of things will go just brushed aside. And that was one of my impetuses for, you know, mm. the impetuses for making a murder in Mansfield is that we definitely, we get to a point where we're just like, oh, okay, it's, you know, it happened, the person died or, oh, the bad guy went to jail or whatever. And we just discard and we don't look at it because yeah, maybe an extra five minutes of them going, you know, this, this, these knots are weird. These are like tactical knots. You learn if you go to boating school, you know, uh, you know, I learned those knots, but I learned them because I worked on set and you had to learn the knots, but like, I don't mm -hmm. think anybody from a set did, did this crime. Um, but you, there's you know, things like the sheets and just simple things that fall down to. And again, it, it begs the question, are they not being examined because they're just lazy and would they be that lazy if they were the Beverly Hills police department <laughs> or, 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 or they, or do they just, are they, you know, there's also the flip side of the coin is, are they so overwhelmed with everything that's going on that good police work sometimes becomes a thing of the past because they are underfunded and overburdened with things that are happening. And it calls into question. I'm not saying this is the case in Ferguson. I don't think it is, but I'm saying in other cities, I remember I was, I'm sure underfunding is a huge problem. And, and the number of cases per detective is probably a huge problem too. Um, but then, but then it, then I bet if you look really closely at what certain detectives chose to put their time into sure. versus the ones they don't, I think you'd see a pattern. Maybe. Well, I'll give you an example. I had a studio that was robbed in 2006 here in LA. It was like, I was a, you know, a musician. It was my, it was everything I had it was in the studio. I was recording my first album, blah, blah, blah. The, the department that investigated this particular type of theft also handled carjackings. There's like 70 at that time, like 70 carjackings a day in Los Angeles. And they're mm. also handling these burglary things. So these divisions get the way that this police work works is, is, you know, they might be, oh, we're standing on homicide investigation, but they're investigating these other sort of waste of resources, you know, mm -hmm. things when they could be devoting resources to actually finding, yes, okay, this kid is found in a tree, has no history of mental illness. He wouldn't right. have committed suicide Maybe there is somebody that's going to do this again. And I think you hear this with serial killer stories and things mm -hmm. where they go, oh, yeah, the guy escaped custody or we were because they were looking the other way or they just were like, oh, we don't really care. It's it this person, whatever. They're poor, which is usually the case or whatever. You know, we don't we kind of discard those people or and then it happens to somebody of prominence and they're like, oh, OK. Oh, well, now we got to pay attention. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, Sharon Tate is dead. OK, this is yeah. a big deal, you know. Well, there were so many times, I mean, every time we thought we had a handle on what we thought we knew on this. Sure. Uh, oh, okay. It's definitely murder. Uh, you leaning towards murder, John? Yeah, I'm definitely leaning towards murder based on everything. And then, then there'd just be this new revelation. We'd be like, it was suicide. And then there'd be another one. And we'd be like, no, it definitely wasn't. You know, and, and we went back and forth. But what we, I don't want to, you know. Again, I've, this is my first interview on this, so I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this without spoiling things that are coming. I will say that one thing that definitely comes out is we start to find out that things that you would assume the police would have done just to do their due, basic due diligence, turns out they didn't, they didn't always do that. And that left open huge doors for us to walk through and make big discoveries that they should have made on day one or week one if they if they were considering the possibility that there might be a murderer out there who's hanging young black men, you know, and making it look like suicide. Now I'll admit that premise, that's a difficult one, but if you know 
that someone that you're going to murder is associated with a prominent Ferguson or Black Lives Matter activist. And you know that the cops are going to be very willing to buy suicide because they're not going to really want to help these people who've been protesting to reform them. Who've been a, yeah, been a thorn on their side for so long. Yeah. It'd be a really smart way to novel way to commit a murder and, and know you're probably going to get away with it just based on like cop bias <laughs> in your area. So anyway, it's an interesting premise, right? Um. You know, I wanted to say something too, Ray, you know, one of the things that I found to be extremely powerful was um, back in the movie, A Time to Kill, mm. uh, at the end, mm, right. his closing argument when he says, you know, he goes through the whole crime and then he's like, now picture her white. Mm. Mm -hmm. That to me was such a powerful statement. And, you know, and I, I think that is a jarring statement to, to shake people up to yeah. shake up their bias and you know to get their attention like you know what if this was your son right you know, would you pay attention more would you be more concerned that this could be you know backlash that this could be you know something that's going to continue to happen uh yeah. right after george floyd there were a couple guys in southern california i think la uh that were found uh hanging from trees and they were uh it looked like suicides but the attorney general like announced yeah like, we you know we have to do every bit of due diligence here to make sure given the history of lynching in this country we're, we're not you know and it was just a total 180 from what she experienced and then to watch her continue to experience that post george floyd yeah. when this being taken seriously in other parts of the country was like yeah. it's maddening it's maddening yeah. if you're just tuning in we have been speaking with ray novashelsky he is the co-creator and co-executive producer of after the uprising an 11-part podcast series available on iHeartRadio starting on june 15th which is next week or by the time i hear this episode and uh ray i want to thank you so much for everything that you're doing and uh thank you for all you've done with the murder in mansfield and uh yeah man it's been a real pleasure i'm thank you Brenda. Thank you, Collier. I love you, man. I really do. <laughs> Appreciate you having me on. Oh, thanks, man. You, thanks, Ray. Uh, I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.